This is Thinking Outside the Portfolio, and I'm Jordan Burgess, Senior Vice President and Head of Product and Practice Consulting at Fidelity Investments. I've been at Fidelity for almost three decades now, and through my time here, I'm consistently amazed by the diverse set of capabilities, insights, resources, and the expertise that the firm brings to investors and advisors. Over the last several years, we've invested in subject matter experts, from people who focus on capital markets, to practice management professionals, asset class specialists, and specialists in portfolio construction. We look at thousands of portfolios every year and use qualitative and quantitative measures to see where markets are going and what it means for you as advisors as you build better portfolios for your clients. We'll take you to the cutting edge of the financial industry, helping hear the latest thinking from advisors as they help their clients put together portfolios in an ever-changing world. We'll try to look at different perspectives on the top issues we're facing, whether volatility, low interest rates, active and passive investment, or developing economies. We'll discuss the best ways to make connections with customers across the industry. And we'll answer some of your most pressing questions about your job, how you can be better at helping your clients. Just as important, how we can help you as advisors build a scalable business that helps you serve your clients in a more efficient way. At Fidelity, we're focused on working with advisors to address and talk about some of the common myths we observe when advisors are building portfolios. Today, we'll be looking at the myth, style and market cap are the only ways to gain an edge. Joining us to talk about style, market cap, and sectors is Rich Kerner, Senior Vice President, Head of our Sector and ETF teams at Fidelity Investments. Hi, Rich. Hey, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being with us. Rich, let's start with the basics about sectors here. Remind people what they are and how significant they are, just so we're all on the same page. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great place to start because um, when you think about the equity market, it's composed of thousands of companies. And to analyze and better understand market dynamics, investors often group companies based on their type of business. Those groupings are just simply called sectors. So when we, when that, that's helpful. So when we talk about portfolio construction in particular, why do those sectors really matter then? Well, there's four really key reasons that when you look at sectors, they, they are so important. One, they, they are a significant driver of overall equity uh, returns. They have really stable classifications. Um, they have clear patterns of risk or volatility, and they have low correlations uh, among themselves. Let's, let's come back and pick those four things apart in just a minute. But also, could you quickly explain to me how this approach to sectors goes against this myth of the ways we can gain an edge in investing. Why do we think about sectors in addition to style and market cap? And how does that round out the picture and, and provide an advantage? Yeah, I, I think when, when we've gone back and examined the data, uh, I think most investors understand that individual stock selection, you know, or just single equities have such a huge component of return. You know, you can look at last year's market and just think about the impact that Tesla had, uh, you know, if you owned it inside your portfolio. But, you know, not all of us are going to pick, you know, Tesla every single year. And it's probably not likely that it's going to re return over 700% each year. But when you look at it more broadly and you think about sectors and companies or sectors and individual stock returns, that makes up almost 93% of how the equity market performs, whereas size and style only account for about 7% of your return. So uh, most folks are thinking about portfolio construction in terms of large and mid and small or even value and growth. Uh, when we think they should also be looking at how much sector uh, composition they have inside their portfolios, because it is such a big driver of return. 
I'm blown away by the 93% versus 7%. So that's that's helpful, I'm sure, for all of our listeners. Um, let me let me turn and ask, why do sectors have stable classifications? Tell me a little bit more about why that matters too. Well, when you think about it, um, when you look at you know the definitions of value and growth, um, you know they 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 are consistent, but companies you know can go through you know various cycles uh, of their life and sometimes find themselves in either the value classification or the growth classification, depending on on their performance. But if you think about their sector classification, it's uh, really very consistent. Uh, you know, if you're a technology company you're gonna be in the technology sector. It's very unlikely that you'd find yourself shifting from technology to industrials. Um, so you know, intuitively, you know, most folks can identify a company and they probably couldn't tell you whether it's large cap value or small cap growth, but they could tell you whether it's a healthcare company or an industrial company or perhaps a consumer discretionary company. So the, the classifications uh, really do resonate with investors. Let me just come back to that. I'm really surprised by the by the return data that you shared. Could we dive a little deeper into that? How are sectors such a big driver of returns when you think about that 93 versus seven? Well, when you, I mean, historically, you know, sectors um, they they have these clear patterns of volatility. But one of the reasons we hear from investors is that they're reluctant to incorporate a lot of sectors uh, into their portfolios. Is they have such wide dispersion of returns. Uh, and so you know, what that means is you find you know, some really strong performance uh, from certain sectors in a given year, depending how the market and the economy is doing, and you can find other sectors uh, that were you know, lagging. Last year, another great example, technology stocks, uh, depending on how you measure it, uh, anywhere from 45 to 65% uh, in terms of total return, energy stocks down over 35%. So if you had the right sector inside your portfolio and the right overweight, it really can be such a strong contributor uh, to your overall return. And that's how we come up with that number. Okay. So you mentioned patterns of volatility and dispersions of return. How volatile are sectors? You know, uh, most uh, sectors tend to move with the business cycle, but we do have what we call defensive sectors, which are kind of like your slow and steady sectors and parts of the economy that regardless of how the economy is doing or even how the market is doing, are always going to be in, in need and demand. And those three defensive sectors, it, because of that need, uh, exhibit a very low uh, volatility to the overall market. And, and I don't think it'll surprise any of our listeners that it's you know areas like healthcare, because regardless of the economy of the market, if you're sick, if you're in need of medical attention, you're going to see your doctor. Uh, consumer staples, uh, we've all realized the importance of the consumer staple uh, industry this year. And then utilities, regardless of, again, what's going on, one of the you know first areas that you're going to continue to you know keep on are the lights and electricity. So um, healthcare staples and utilities have below market uh, volatility, and that makes them more defensive. Uh, and really, we think a good component um, to get equity-like exposure, but with uh, without overall market volatility. Could you could you talk to me just a little bit more about what you mean by low correlations and why does that make sectors a good way to get an edge? 
Yeah. So if you, if you think about it, um, when you, when you look at your portfolio, you're trying to build, as we all know, uh, you know, a diverse correlation of assets. And so you've got equity and fixed income. Usually fixed income acts as a ballast to the equity side of your portfolio. But within your equity portfolio, you can diversify among asset classes. Certainly you've got domestic and international. We're really just talking about the domestic side of your portfolio. And what we found is the correlations between the more traditional way that a lot of investors look at their portfolio, value and growth, large and small, are much higher. And so that means they tend to move in lockstep. So when large growth is working, mid growth and small growth tend to be working as well. When you look at it from a sector perspective, you can see you know, a little bit higher correlation between areas like technology and, and uh, communication services. But when you look at things like technology and utilities, there's a less than about 0.2 correlation between those two sectors. So the nice thing about sectors is you can take a look at your portfolio, and we've got a great tool at Fidelity, the Portfolio Quick Check, that can examine your portfolio and give you a sector breakdown. But we can take a look at your portfolio and find out where you're overweight, market cap weight, and, and perhaps underweight. And there could be a really good opportunity to increase your exposure uh, to some sectors that you're underweight that might also uh, help reduce the overall uh, correlation to how things move inside your portfolio, which should, over the long run, help enhance uh, returns. So really, another another angle on diversification within your domestic equity, domestic equity bucket. Exactly. Um, you mentioned earlier on that the, the fact that companies in a sector are similar. Uh, it allows you to find more opportunities in certain economic conditions. What kind of economic conditions are you looking for there? Uh, we rely on Fidelity's asset allocation and research team to uh, kind of help us understand where we are in terms of uh, the business cycle. And we can go all the way back to the 60s uh, that show us, you know, as you look at the various business cycles, you can see that equity market and sectors within the equity market, uh, they tend to rotate as the economy moves from one stage of the cycle uh, to the next. Um, and so right now we're in the early cycle phase. Um, this is one of the uh, areas where you tend to have some of the best equity uh, market performance. And it tends to be an area where you look for more cyclical uh, you know, sectors to outperform, areas of the economy that were probably beaten up and hurt pretty significantly um, you know, during the recession or during a, even a market pullback and are now starting to uh, improve because you're starting to see those first signs of economic improvement uh, and you're seeing the market uh, you know, recover. So uh, they tend to be uh, more interest rate sensitive sectors uh, and consumer related sectors like uh, consumer discretionary and financials uh, have been some of the more broadly speaking uh, you know, sectors that have performed well uh, in the early stages uh, of the economic cycle. But as, as we all know, Every cycle can be a little bit different, um, but you know historically those have been places to look at when you're in the early cycle. So just to level set, maybe for our listeners you could hit just to level set the four phases of of, of this business cycle that you reference, um, and maybe an example of how a sector might behave differently depending on where we are in each of those economic cycles. Maybe we could start with where we are currently. Yeah, so so we're in the early cycle uh, stage of the economy, and that, as we talked about, is you know, you're you're coming out of you know the the recessionary environment, which is the last stage of the cycle. Um, and so, if you think about you know, in the early stages, 
We're coming out of uh, you know a very brief but very steep uh, recessionary environment. We're starting to see signs of economic recovery. We're starting to see things uh, like industrial manufacturing, uh, you know, increase uh, all across the globe. And again, that early cycle stage uh, tends to lead to a little bit higher interest rates. Could be uh, different uh, in this environment that we're in right now, but it tends to you know produce more cyclical growth, which leads to uh, people spending more that uh, bodes well for sectors like the consumer discretionary space uh, and also uh, bodes well historically, as I mentioned, for financials. As we move from the early cycle phase, we get into the mid cycle phase. And if you just go back to our last recessionary uh, environment in uh, 2008 and 2009, we really moved quickly out of the early cycle phase and stayed in that mid cycle phase for anywhere from nine to 10 years, depending on how you measure uh, uh, business cycles. When you're in that mid-cycle phase, you tend to see uh, you know, areas like technology uh, perform really well. And we certainly saw that and continue to see that uh, over the last you know, eight plus years uh, as you know, technology companies have uh, continued to uh, really do well in that uh, you know, mid-cycle phase. Late cycle is just as you would imagine, you're getting later in that economic recovery. So things are starting to uh, slow down a little bit. Uh, and so when things start to slow down, people start thinking about, well, you know, what's important? You know, what are some of the areas that I need to you know, continue to maintain? What isn't going to have as much as a slowdown? And that's some of those defensive sectors that we talked about before. So things like healthcare, things like you know, staples and utilities you really tend to uh, you know, perform well as you're getting you know, later into the business cycle. And then finally, uh, you know, the recessionary environment is, as we've all you know, just experienced, extremely painful. It can be a, you know, a difficult recovery, a different time in the markets, especially on the equity side. And again, in that area, you want to be in those defensive sectors that work well in the late cycle. They tend to hold up as well um, in the uh, late stages of the business cycle as well. So again, Healthcare staples, utilities are, are places that you can look at, uh, you know, in the later stages. So the business cycle moves, you know, it doesn't always move perfectly from early to mid to late to recession. But when you go back and you look at research through time and how sectors have performed, you can see these clear patterns of, you know, in early in early stages, certain sectors tend to do a little bit better in mid and late. You get to see you know, a little bit of a different uh, rotation across sectors. And then in the recessionary environment, it, it becomes tough for the equity markets. But certainly, uh, as we talked about, there are certain areas of the economy um, that relate to the equity market that people will continue to uh, need and use. Uh, and those stocks then hold up a little bit better. Are there other strategies we should be aware of when it comes to sectors, just so that we can best advise our clients on portfolio construction? Yeah, so so we've we, we've talked a little bit, you know, uh, about you know portfolio completion strategies here today. I think that's a that's a great way to you know examine your portfolio through, as I mentioned, the portfolio quick check tool that that we offer as a great way to examine and look at your sector overweights. That could certainly be uh, you know an area where you could examine some perhaps gaps uh, in, in your portfolio. Um, you can certainly use uh, equity sectors as a way to increase income. Uh, you know, you think about sectors like utilities and real estate have above uh, market uh, dividend yields. So that's a great place to uh, you know, increase your income portion of your portfolio. You can, as we talked a little bit about, there are these defensive sectors like healthcare, staples and utilities 
That's a great way as well uh, to maintain equity exposure, but dampen down uh, volatility, uh, which could be important, you know, in a you know a retiree uh, investment portfolio. And then finally, you know, one area that's important to look at as well, just diversifying what we call human capital, and and simply that is if you know if you're someone like us that works in the financial services industry, you've got even though your portfolio might have a market cap weight in financials, you've got a lot of your income uh, and future income tied to the financial services sector. That might be an area where you actually might want to be a little bit below market cap weight because you have so much you know, tied to it. The same could be said for uh, you know, an investor uh, that works in the technology space. So um, diversifying uh, beyond human capital is another, uh, we think, great way that it's important to know your sector allocations and then also find uh, you know a, a good solution to perhaps an overweight uh, in certain parts of uh, the, the sector environment. So just to recap, I mean, this the sector investing really, as you as you start off with, has been an enormous driver of returns. You mentioned the ninety three percent of returns driven by sectors. Um, you talked about the, the the consistent patterns of risk and volatility that you can observe, the stable classifications, and then how to use them as a diversification tool with, within your domestic equity uh, part of your portfolio. So I, I think that's really helpful. What else should we be thinking about as we think about how to build portfolios for our clients? I think we've, we've, we've covered a lot of areas in terms of defensive sectors, cyclical sectors, uh, income sectors. Um, you know, I think when you think about portfolio construction, hopefully folks understand and, and, and get a better sense that, you know, understanding and knowing their sector exposure uh, can really be, you know, such an important, not only an important driver of returns, but also a very important way to diversify, reduce overall correlation within the portfolio, and then provide some of those solutions that we talked about, whether it's more income, uh, whether it's maybe perhaps even dialing up the risk a little bit inside a portfolio, dialing down the risk a little bit inside a portfolio, or again, diversifying away from maybe some unintended exposures just based on the business or industry that you work in or that your family works in. So, um, you know, it's such an important tool. I think the big takeaway is just to make sure that folks take the time to understand and not only know, you know, their domestic versus international, large versus small, value versus growth exposures, but to know how much technology they have and how much healthcare and how much real estate, and how much utilities is just such an important takeaway. So as we move beyond kind of the traditional wisdom of um, sector investing, what else should we be thinking about? Well, I think the I think the other area that uh, we we talk about in our group, and that is uh, you know factor investing. Um, and sometimes folks have heard about this from you know other names that they. they they hear it called maybe smart or strategic beta. The strategies have become really popular among investors. Um, the uh, over the last five years, the uh, we've seen more than two hundred fifty billion dollars flow into factor investing. Um, and so we get a lot of questions as to, well, you know, what are factors? And it's it's really quite simple. You know, factors are just another you know characteristic that help you you know explain uh, risk and return. At the end of the day, the 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 five key factors uh, that we look at are size. So that's another way of saying small cap, uh, value, momentum, quality, and, and low ball. So five, five factors you're looking at, 
you know, you mentioned value. Haven't value stocks been underperforming recently? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and, and it's one that, that we, we get asked a, a lot. Although it, uh, you know, we did see a, a, a pretty strong rotation into uh, some of the the the, uh, the value stocks uh, in the fourth quarter uh, in 2020. But I, I think probably the one of the reasons that value stocks have have lagged is there's a lot of different ways to define value, and, and that's evolved over time. The, the early academics and investors simply just looked at price to book ratios, and, and that was how many of the early indices and ETFs that um, you know, help folks get exposure to value um, you know, put, put a lot of emphasis on just simply you know, what's a company's price to book ratio. But there's a lot of different ways to define value. So uh, um, one of the ways we look at it, we actually examine earnings and sales and cash flows. And that can help you, you know, judge whether a stock is inexpensive. And we really believe the more metrics that you bring in, uh, it can help you, you know, reduce some of the volatility, reduce some of the, you know, just reliance on on one single uh, exposure. Uh, it also, as as we talked about with sectors, helps with diversification benefits, and, and we think that's a, a better approach. And so if you look at some of the more diversified value um, approaches out there, they've actually done you know, reasonably well, not as strong as obviously the growth market in 2020, but much better returns than your traditional, uh, maybe single focused uh, value metrics. Rich, could you talk a little bit about Fidelity's approach, uh, why it's unique and different when it comes to factor investing? Yeah. So, I mean, th- this is one of my you know favorite topics to, uh, you know, to talk about. I, I think when most folks uh, think about Fidelity, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, Magellan or Contrafun or, you know, Peter Lynch or, or, or Will Danoff. I mean, it, it's we're fortunate that we are home to you know, some of the industry's most successful bottom up fundamental you know, managers out there. But what most folks don't know is that we've actually had quantitative research analysts on staff since the mid 60s. And really probably more important for the last 30 years, our quantitative research team has been embedded within our fundamental research team. And so you know, you think about this, the quants um, in some shops just all work together. But here at Fidelity, our quantitative research team works with our equity portfolio managers and our fixed income portfolio managers. So I mentioned some of our, you know, our legacy, you know, great, you know, growth funds. And, and there's a quant that sits with our growth team to help them analyze stocks and their portfolios, right? And so when we decided to launch our factor-based solutions, which were uh, in the fall of, of, of 2016, we actually had a library of over 3,000 factor models, right? And so, you know, we were able to go back and look at, you know, some of the models that we've built for our fundamental portfolio managers. And what we found, uh, even looking at the landscape out there, is that um, there were a lot of ways to get exposure to some of the factors that we just talked about. Again, size, value, momentum, quality, low vol. But a lot of the products that were in the marketplace uh, got you that exposure, but also increased your exposure to unintended risks. And folks always ask us, well, you know, what's an unintended risk? And we built our strategies to eliminate those unintended risks, which are size, sector, and security. So a lot of portfolios will sometimes tilt into more small cap to pick up some of that traditional small cap premium. The fidelity factor approach is actually market cap or size neutral. Um, 
The, for the vast majority of our products, uh, we are actually sector neutral. So we don't uh, move up and down. We take the same weighting that you find in a large cap indice like the Russell 1000 or the S&P 500 and, and maintain those same exact sector weights. And then finally, a um, little bit in the weeds here, but this is, you know, we're what we call uh, security neutral in that uh, we take an equal active overweight approach to security selection. It, it just simply means we spread the bets throughout the portfolio. Uh, this is a quantitative approach that we use. Uh, it is built, you know, in collaboration with our fundamental research team. So we like to think of this process as being actively designed, but passively in implemented. And because it's passively implemented, you know, you spread those bets across the portfolio uh, because there is no, you know, fundamental research or analyst deciding that, you know, company A looks a little bit better than company B and, and should get, you know, an extra 50 basis points. So a lot of information there, but uh, certainly we think the Fidelity approach is uh, much different and unique than uh, most others in the marketplace. Rich, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Rich is a senior vice president at Bill Investments, head of our sector and ETF um, teams. Thanks so much for talking with me today. On Thinking Outside the Portfolio, we always love to bring you into the conversation. Um, if you've got a question for us, please be sure to reach out. Our listener question today is really focused on the current interest rate environment and a challenge that advisors and investors are dealing with, which is how to ge generate income with interest rates so low. Rich, maybe you could provide some some insights and um, ideas on that topic. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I think you know we, when you look at this from the topics that we've touched on today, from sectors and from factors, um, there's there's a couple of things that jump out to help investors' portfolios you know increase the amount of income. Uh, you know, from a sector perspective, uh, we talked about it briefly, but if you look at the utility sector, uh, it offers uh, well north of a three percent dividend yield. Um, that uh, you know looks very attractive versus you know uh, the, the overall market uh, dividend yield, but also competes very strongly with uh, what you can find in, in the fixed income market. Uh, real estate securities uh, also um, you know are, are close to three uh, percent, depending on which you know part of the real estate market um, you're in. And so, you know, I think those are two sectors that you could, again, as we've talked about here today, you know, examine your portfolio composition and make sure that you are well aware of, uh, you know, your weightings in utilities and real estate and, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, get back to a market cap weight in those areas or maybe even slightly overweight uh, to increase the income. Uh, you know, from a factor perspective, dividend yield, uh, uh, they're number of dividend products uh, here at Fidelity, we actually offer two uh, dividend focused ETFs domestically. Uh, one is a high dividend yield product uh, that's yielding almost 4%. What we look for in both of our dividend products are not only dividend yield, but dividend growth to make sure that the companies can continue to support uh, that high yield and also their payout ratio. So we're making sure that companies aren't paying out too much of their income and, and can't support that dividend yield. So um, dividend yielding ETFs uh, would be, I think, a great solution, uh, you know, for those advisors and investors uh, looking for more income uh, in, in their client portfolios. Well, thank you, Rich. It sounds like there's some real opportunities here in terms of sector investing and factor investing for our advisors to think about. So we really appreciate kind of your thoughts, your expertise and the insights you shared with us today. Again, for our audience, this is Rich Kerner, Senior Vice President, Head of our Sector and ETF teams at Bell Investments. And Rich, thanks again for being with us.
Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Please join me for future episodes of Thinking Outside the Portfolio as we discuss the myths and realities of portfolio construction. Until then, I'm Jordan Burgess. Stay safe and be well. Information presented herein is for illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Views are expressed as of January 2021 based on the information available at that time and may be changed based on market or other conditions. The opinions provided are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Investment decisions should be based on an individual's own goals, time horizon, and tolerance for risk. Nothing in this content should be considered as legal or tax advice, and you are encouraged to consult your own lawyer, accountant, or other advisor before making any financial decisions. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or guarantee against loss. Stock markets, especially foreign markets, are volatile and can decline significantly in response to adverse issue or political regulatory market or economic developments. Foreign securities are subject to interest rate, currency exchange rate, economic and political risks, all of which are magnified in emerging markets. The risks are particularly significant for funds that focus on a single country or region in general. The bond market is volatile and fixed income securities carry interest rate risk. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall and vice versa. This effect is usually more pronounced for longer-term securities. Fixed-income securities also carry inflation, credit, and default risks for both issuers and larger parties. There is no guarantee that a factor-based investing strategy will enhance performance or reduce risk. Before investing, make sure you understand how the fund's factor investment strategy may differ from more traditional index funds. Depending on market conditions, fund performance may underperform compared to funds that seek to track a market capitalization weighted index. The return of an index ETF is usually different from that of the index it tracks because of fees, expenses, and tracking error. An ETF may trade at a premium or discount to its net asset value, NAV. Unlike mutual funds, ETF shares are bought and sold at market price, which may be higher or lower than their NAV and are not individually redeemed from the fund. The use of the term advisor throughout this podcast shall refer to both investment advisors and broker dealers as a collective term. Fidelity Institutional SMFI provides investment products through Fidelity Distributors Company LLC and clearing custody or other brokerage services through National Financial Services LLC or Fidelity Brokerage Services LLC, members NYSC, SIPC. Institutional Asset Management Services are provided by FIAM LLC or Fidelity Institutional Asset Management Trust Company. Personal and workplace investment products are provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Before investing in any mutual fund or exchange-traded fund, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact your investment professional or visit i.fidelity.com for a prospectus, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. Reference number 961 430.1.0.